This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We ended last week's show by saying that uh, if radio programs were home runs, we'd be one behind Babe Ruth. I guess today that makes us tied with the Babe, for this is show number 714. We're always forward-promoting future endeavors and guests and the like on this program. And today we're going to make good on our promise to bring back Bob Dunham to talk a bit about some of the financial shenanigans going on in this country. We also mentioned last week that we would uh, pay tribute to the great comedy team of Bob and Ray. Bob Elliott uh, passed away a couple weeks ago, and we wanted to air one of our favorite bits from uh, their their canon of material. So I think we'll close today's program with the slow talkers of America. And in our second segment today, we're going to get in the time machine and take a trip back to show number 201 which originally aired on April 13th back in 2006, almost 10 years ago. That will be our interview with the authors of Oops! 20 Life Lessons from the Fiascos that Shaped America. The twin authors of that were Martin J. Smith and Patrick J. Kiger, and uh, Martin Smith gave us 20 minutes of his time to talk about a fascinating book. And we will re-air that in our second segment today. Let's commence the show, as we like to do with On This Date in History. In this case, we will cross-reference the items to Black History Month. A note, on our date today, February 25th, in the year 1870, Hiram Rhodes Revels, a Republican from Natchez, Mississippi, was sworn into the U.S. Senate. He was, in fact, the first African-American to sit in Congress. This is worth an aside to note that back in 1870, Revels, like all senators, was elected by the state legislature. At that point, the Mississippi state legislature was dominated by Republicans, who were, of course, at that time, the anti-slavery party for which we fought a civil war over. When rebels arrived in Washington, D.C., Southern Democrats opposed seating him in the Senate, and after two days of debate, during which time the Senate galleries were packed with spectators, the matter was argued. The Democrats were basing their opposition on the 1857 Dred Scott decision, which ruled that people of African ancestry were not and could not be citizens. They argued that no black man was a citizen before the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, and thus rebels could not satisfy the requirement of the Senate for nine years prior citizenship. Isn't it great that today we've moved past such idiotic judicial-type arguments His supporters noted that the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments had pretty much overturned Dred Scott. Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner said, The time has passed for argument. Nothing more need be said. For a long time, it's been clear that colored persons must be senators. And while that might have been true, after Reconstruction, during which time Blanche Kelso Bruce, a black man, also served in the Senate, it took until Edward William Brooke of Massachusetts assumed office on January 3rd, 1967, for there to be another one. We should also mention one black senator from Illinois named Barack Obama, because he went on to do pretty well politically. And it was on February 25th in the year 1964, and I remember this like it was yesterday. The American boxer Cassius Clay shocked the boxing world by defeating heavyweight champion Sonny Liston. 
Clay had predicted victory, boasting he would float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Two weeks later, Cassius Marcellus Clay would change his name to Muhammad Ali. He also went on to a fair amount of success. Emilio Parallax would make the case not just in boxing, but also in comedy, often with his straight man, Howard Cosell. This ain't nothing new. My image is being confident. What you're trying to make it look like something new for? I'm always confident I whip all of them. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Let's tell it like it is. Right from the beginning. I've made you famous enough. Everywhere I go, you follow me to get your name in the papers and on television. I'd You'd still you. be stealing bikes in Louisville if Don't it's not you're not the man you were 10 years ago, right? Right. Well, I'm going to ask your wife, are you the man you was last year? You'll get a quick answer. And being this is our last program in February, we should do a couple items related to Black History Month. I don't believe we said too much about the passing uh, late last year of Natalie Cole, daughter of the great Nat King Cole. Her obituaries noted that when she launched her musical career in the 70s, she scrupulously avoided material that might invite comparisons to her late father. It worked. She rose to stardom with R&B hits. But after battling heroin and crack cocaine addiction in the 1980s, she experienced a renaissance by embracing her father's legacy. A 1991 album of his best-known songs, Unforgettable, with Love, topped the charts, and its title track, which spliced her soaring soprano with Nat's silky baritone for a ghostly duet, won Record of the Year at the Grammys. Noted the New York Times, once Cole was clean, her talent prevailed. She had a light, supple, perpetual, optimistic voice. And Mr. Mellon, I hope you can work, uh, work unforgettable somewhere into our bumper music today. I won't forget. Another 2015 obituary I want to mention was that of Meadowlark Lemon. In 1943, Meadowlark Lemon, then 11, saw a newsreel that would change his life. Sitting in a cinema in the Jim Crow South, he watched in awe as the barnstorming basketball troupe known as the Harlem Globetrotters tore across the screen. Lemon later said the players were unlike any I'd ever seen. They laughed, they danced, they did ball tricks. Something else about them struck him. They were all black men, the same color as me. Lemon made it his goal to become a Globetrotter, an ambition he more than achieved. During a 24-year career with the team, the six-foot-three center became the Globetrotters' main showman, loved for his slapstick comedy routines and his array of trick shots. Lemon could make jaw-dropping half-court hook shots and look behind the back passes, said the LA Times. He was also a natural comic who made crowds erupt in laughter by sneaking up and spying on the opposition's huddle, pouring buckets of water on their heads, and mimicking baseball and football plays. He said, you first had to prove you could play basketball. Then you had to show that you could be funny. I was somewhat surprised to learn in some of the obits that the Globetrotters were criticized for their buffoonish image. Some called the all-black team a traveling minstrel show. Lemon countered by saying they helped the civil rights movement by performing in front of adoring crowds of all races. He said, America needs Sammy Davis Jr. and Louis Armstrong, and America and the world needed people like the Harlem Globetrotters. This correspondent's not a basketball fan, but I did see the Harlem Globetrotters back when I was in high school, and I thought they were awesome. I also recall a time back in high school when our sociology teachers, two of them, 
gathered up both classes, stuck us in a bus, and drove us up to Oakland to see an ongoing trial. The idea was to see the criminal justice system in action, and our, our teacher certainly picked a provocative incident to do it with. It was a trial of a couple of Black Panthers involved in a police shooting, or at least a shootout with police. One thing I vividly remember was a couple of Black Panther supporters coming over to a wee group of students and saying, you buying into this fascist railroad? About that time, one of the prosecution team also took an interest in us and came over to explain what had happened in the incident. My fellow classmate Robin Rogers then raised the uh, suggestion that it would be desirable to hear the other side of the story as well. This, as you might imagine, did not go down well with the assistant DA. Noticing Robin's somewhat hippieish garb and long hair, he focused right in with, Oh, I see, young man. You feel the need to challenge authority, is that it? My teacher, Mr. Mattingly, witnessed this, and I could tell from the expression of his face, thought, well, that's a bit unfair, the DA beaten up on a high school kid. But I, he, I think, wisely elected just to let it pass. It's sad to note, of course, that a generation later, racial issues are still very much with us. Although, frankly, this correspondent is not quite sure that the matter of uh, the Oscars is deserving the ink that it's getting. Writing in the New York Post, Kyle Smith said the Oscars aren't racist. Over the past 15 years, 10% of acting nominees were black. The black proportion of the population was 12 to 13% in that period, so it's hardly a wild disparity. In recent years, Academy of Votes gave acting Oscars to Forrest Whitaker, Monique, and Lupita Nyong'o. And just two years ago, 12 Years a Slave by black filmmaker Steve McQueen did win Best Picture. Anyway, I'm somewhat more intrigued by a piece in the Washington Post written by Donald H. Yee addressing the issue of college sports. Donald Yee is a sports lawyer, and he says college sports has a racist business model. He notes that the two sports that bring in most of the revenue to colleges, football and basketball, are largely played by young black men. In the six biggest conferences, according to a 2013 study, 57% of football players and 64% of men's basketball players were African Americans, even though black men made up less than 3% of the overall student population. He notes that only a tiny percentage of college athletes go on to sign NBA or NFL contracts, and many never get their diplomas because they're required to spend so much time practicing, traveling, and playing. But, he notes, their free labor on the playing field generates billions of dollars for the coaches, colleges, assistants, and officials in the conferences and NCAA, which routinely makes salaries ranging from $500,000 to $7 million a year. A recent study found that 87% of top-tier football coaches and 67% of Division I basketball coaches were white. Yee says it's time for athletes to realize the huge economic power they wield and take a stand. If they refuse to play until they are paid, colleges will panic and change could come rapidly and fairly easily. Provocative idea. What do you think about it, dear listener? Drop us a line and let us know at info at radioparallax.com. Our quote of the day comes from the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who once said, A man who has made no enemies is probably not a very good man. I suppose that might be true. Our quote of the day comes from Edward R. Murrow, who once said, A nation of sheep will beget a government of wolves. We fear that may also be true. Our anecdote is the briefest one ever. According to Google Trends, the most asked question about Jeb Bush in South Carolina during the Republican debate was, is Jeb Bush related to George W. Bush? Good God.
Our joke of the day is a modified version of one from Emo Phillips. In which I would note, yeah, I have to admit, last week I was beaten by a computer in a game of chess. But I'll tell you what, it was no match for me in kickboxing. Our stat of the day, according to the Gallup organization, in a poll taken last summer, was that 29% of Americans held a favorable view of Antonin Scalia. 27%, on the other hand, viewed him unfavorably. And 32% of Americans had never heard of Antonin Scalia. And our good news item is as follows. An active sex life late in life may have a protective effect on the brain, helping older people stay mentally sharp. In a new study, British scientists gave more than 6,800 men and women between 50 and 89 years of age a series of cognitive tests. The older men who were sexually active scored higher on number sequences and word recall tests. And for whatever reason, the women with an active sex life didn't score higher on the numbers test, but it was associated with a better memory for words. And while we would note that these findings don't prove a causal relationship between sex and improved brain health, Researchers note that there are other perks associated with physical intimacy, including stress relief, improved sleep quality, and a stronger immune system. And I would add, and I would add editorially that older gentlemen should not let erectile dysfunction stand in their way. As the owner and operator of a, of a clinic that deals with this, I can tell you that our success rate in alleviating that problem runs close to 90%. All right, and before we jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, I do want to note one item from our favorite blog, Mark Evanier's News From Me, which was the report from Mark that his friend, movie reviewer Leonard Malton, finally, after years of sitting through all the movies he reviews to the bitter end, walked out on a picture. As part of Radio Parallax's continuing public service of attacking lousy comedians, we move this week from lame cartoonists to lame movie makers. In this case... Ben Stiller, because Ben Stiller is the director, co-writer, and leading actor in Zoolander 2, a movie that's so bad, Leonard Maltin had to throw the towel in on it. Of course, we have to grant he may have been helped by anti-comic Will Ferrell, who we feel in general soars like a lead balloon. To quote from Leonard Maltin, let me explain. I never walk out of movies, ever. Once I'm at a screening or at a theater, I stay till the bitter end. Used to tell myself it's because I hoped the film would get better, but that almost never happens. I also felt I couldn't properly review a film unless I watched it from start to finish. But as I embarked on the experience of watching Zoolander 2 at a press screening, I had an immediate reaction of annoyance and impatience. The film was stupid right from the start. I told myself I was wasting my time for no good reason. Still, I stayed. 10 minutes passed, then 20, filled with puerile and unfunny gags, along with gratuitous cameo appearances by everyone from Katy Perry to Willie Nelson. If even one of them had seemed clever, I might have summoned some hope for the rest of the picture. But it was not to be. Finally, after almost an hour, I strode out of the theater, proud of myself for taking positive action and sparing myself further insult. If there are hilarious moments in the latter half of the movie, I can't cite them for you. I can only offer an honest appraisal of what I saw. He adds... I bear no permanent grudge against anyone connected with the movie and hope they do better next time out. Well, we hope so too. But personally, we don't see any way to protect the public unless Ben Stiller and Will Ferrell can be marooned on Johnson Atoll. By the way, the opinion that uh, Ferrell and Stiller should be marooned on an island, 
like all opinions heard on this program, does not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly to end this segment. All right, according to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for strange bedfellows after a group of prostitutes called Hookers for Hillary endorsed Hillary Clinton in the Nevada caucuses. Said Entice Love, and we suspect that's not her real name, women should help other women, right? Well, maybe. She did win. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for being completely honest with the news that a New York man who had lost his wallet along with his license and credit cards, received a package from the finder that included a note. I should preface that the package only included the license and credit cards. The note read, I kept the cash because I needed weed. Also, the Metro card because, well, the fare's two seventy-five now. And the wallet because it's kind of cool. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for the Russian internet with the news that an anti-smoking poster featuring President Obama, who quit years ago, but is seen puffing the last dregs of a cigarette, has gone viral in Russia. The now photoshopped poster says, smoking kills lots more people than Obama, although he kills lots and lots of people. Adding, don't smoke. Don't be like Obama. Reportedly, the only liberal opposition member of the Russian state Duma, Dmitry Gudkov, placed a photo of the poster on social media, which he saw at a Moscow bus shelter, and denounced the demonization of the U.S. president as disgusting and embarrassing. Well, it probably is that, but but even more disgusting and embarrassing is the fact that the Senate Judiciary Committee's Republicans have said they're not even going to hold hearings on appointing a new Supreme Court justice. How pathetic. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.